Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War, where I look at Canada through the First World War. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Canadian History X, which releases every single Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, and From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. As well, on Thursday, June 3rd, I'm launching a new podcast called Coast to Coast, where I look at the building of the Transcontinental Railway. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Just over one month after Canada had its first taste of battle with the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, the soldiers in the Canadian divisions had gone through various minor skirmishes. As of yet, most of these skirmishes had seen small numbers of casualties. At Neuve-Chapelle, the Canadians had 300 casualties, but that was far less than the Indian and British divisions suffered, with the dead numbering in the thousands. For Canadians, that reprieve from the slaughter of the First World War would not last. One month after they saw their first large-scale battle, the Canadians would be thrust completely into the fray, making their first major offensive operation of the war at a place called Kitchener's Wood. First, it can be logical to assume that Kitchener's Wood was named for Lord Kitchener, a near-legendary figure during the First World War for Britain and Canada. After all, as we learned in the anti-German hysteria episode, Berlin, Ontario, changed its name to Kitchener. The truth is that the wood was where French troops housed their field kitchens, and that gave the grove its name among British troops. On April 22, 1915, the first poison gas attack of the war would be launched by the Germans on two French divisions. The French divisions quickly broke, unable to cope with the chlorine gas, and this left a gap of 5 kilometers in the line. The 1st Canadian Division was soon pulled out of reserve where it had been for the past few weeks, and sent in to seal this gap, specifically at a spot called Kitchener's Wood. The 10th Battalion of the Canadian 2nd Brigade was ordered to counterattack, and they would form up on the line at 11pm on April 22nd. The Canadian Scottish 16th Battalion of the 3rd Canadian Brigade soon arrived on the line, and were ordered to support the advance. Together, the two battalions amounted to 800 men. The 10th Battalion was led by Lieutenant Colonel Russell Boyle, a Boer War veteran who challenged anyone who complained about his methods and had a strict discipline about him. The 16th Battalion was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Leckie, a Boer War veteran and a graduate of the Royal Military College. Considered one of the most outstanding militia officers in Western Canada, he ensured that his battalion, made up of various Canadian divisions, was a cohesive unit with a common khaki kilt. He also earned the respect of his soldiers and ensured that they had an extra emergency ration and two additional bondoliers of small arms ammunition before they moved out. The 10th Battalion was organized in lines that were 30 yards apart, creating four waves of attackers who would move forward shoulder to shoulder. Boyle used the formation that was a relic from the War of 1812, and it was terribly inefficient for the new modern warfare of the First World War. One officer suggested that the men be detached from the main advance in order to eliminate a German position at a nearby farm, which would have fired directly on the waves of advancing men, but Boyle denied the suggestion. Another issue was that there was no artillery support. 
The only support would be an 18-pound gun, which was being repaired. It was moved forward, and it could only fire 60 rounds that had no way of being accurate, and it simply fired at the edge of the wood. At 11.46 p.m., the order to advance was given, and the 10th Battalion covered half the distance from the start line to the wood. According to the war diary of the 10th Battalion, the only sound was the quiet tramp of feet and the knock of bayonet sheaths against thighs. They soon discovered that their path was impeded by a hedge of interlaced wire. It was at this point they discovered that no reconnaissance had been done prior to the attack. Now standing 200 yards from the German machine guns, the Canadians were forced to break through the wire with their rifle butts. Once they broke through, the troops ran the last 200 yards towards the woods and attacked the Germans. Private W.J. McKenna would write about the battle, quote, We were told that our efforts were regarded as practically hopeless and that our work was to be in the nature of a sacrifice charge. At midnight, without bombs, machine guns, or artillery support, we started to advance. Presently, a bullet whistled by, then another, and before you could close an eye, enemy machine guns opened about as hot a fire as you can imagine. Men fell in hundreds, but some of us got there and... When they were facing our bayonets, the Germans were soon beaten, and those that weren't killed escaped as fast as they could. End quote. According to the war diary of the 16th Battalion, it was said about confronting the Germans, quote, Many were bayoneted, others surrendered, men were cautioned about dealing harshly with prisoners. End quote. While they were successful in the attack, the battalions would suffer a staggering 75% casualty rate, with 259 men killed. 406 wounded, and 129 missing. But the fighting was not done by this point, and over the next few days, small attacks by the Germans would be conducted, but they would not take any land as the Canadians and French held firm. Sergeant H. Hall would say, quote, An hour after we had dug in, there was a terrible concentration of shells sweeping the wood. It was just like a tropical storm sweeps a forest. It was impossible for us to hold the position, but instead of retiring, we tried our tactics of advancing and attacking the Germans again. They were digging themselves in 200 yards in front. We got in a forward position and stayed there until the early hours of the morning. Our colonel was killed, and we only had two officers left. We were still losing men when the German artillery fire in our ranks were now so thin that we couldn't stay out in an exposed position. End quote. The troops retreated back to the trench line and prepared for an attack to come through the woods from the Germans. Private McKenna would add, quote, Our roll call while we were in our trench was about 360, which means out of a battalion alone lost about 740 men, all in 10 minutes, and we suffered more casualties before we got away. End quote. It was not for nothing, though, at least in the eyes of Hall, who said, quote, Our objective had been achieved and the Germans were demoralized. Our first brigade appeared on the scene and the line was strengthened. End quote. The 1st Canadian Division would suffer, as a whole, 60% casualties in the battle, and the 10th and 16th Battalions only had 20% of their men make it through without injury or death. One death was particularly notable. Lieutenant Colonel Boyle was hit by machine gun fire in the opening attack. As for Lieutenant Colonel Leckie, he would die from his wounds days later. The historian of the 48th Highlanders of Canada, who participated in the battle, would state of the battle, quote, an infernal more terrible than Dante's. It was a nightmare so awful it seems in memory a fantasy of terror and misery. Above the old town the sky was a livid void, ablaze from the red glow that rose and fell and rose and fell incessantly. 
The road to the west was shocked with mad traffic, overrun with terror. It was the river of fear, and while it flowed on, dying Ypres behind would shake to a mighty concessions, would glow suddenly and stand with the fallen wall stained against her own blood-red shroud. End quote. And as I want to do with battle episodes, I want to look at the men who died serving their country. Of course, there were so many dead I can't cover them all, but I'm going to look at a few anyways. Private George Barker had been originally listed as wounded, and then reported as missing in a cable sent to his mother in Galt, Ontario. It was later changed to wounded and missing, and his body was never found and his date of death was listed as April 22, 1915. He had turned 19 in January. Private William Lester Babcock was only 24 when he was fighting in France. He had previously been assumed to be missing and presumed dead, but a comrade was able to state that they were captured by the Germans during the attack, and Babcock was wounded in the left knee and unable to walk. The comrade then stated that he was bayoneted to death. Private James Forbes of Revelstoke, British Columbia, would conduct a brave act before he died. Forbes had worked for the Imperial Bank before he enlisted, and in the battle it was reported that he, quote, saw a comrade fall about 40 yards from his trench. Private Forbes, along with another, got out of the trench and carried the wounded Canadian, whose leg was broken, into the trench and helped in the rendering of first aid. After the severe fighting, the Canadians were relieved, and while a party was in the trench, Private Forbes was struck by a piece of shrapnel in the head and died instantly. End quote. Private Walter Balfour was taking part in the charge on Kitchener's Wood when he was killed, no details were provided about the actual circumstances of his death, but at the time of his death he was only 24 years old. Sidney Atwill was employed at the Calgary Herald and had previously worked for the Hudson's Bay Company before he enlisted to fight. When he was killed, he was only 20 years old. Lieutenant Guy Drummond of Quebec had enlisted at Valcartier on September 22, 1914, and he was sent overseas with the rest of the Canadian contingent. Killed by a bullet during the fight, Colonel John Curry would state of him, quote, When he fell, Canada lost a valuable and useful citizen. His training, education, and charm of manner, coupled with his intense patriotism, marked him for a great career. Major Norsworthy, his friend and comrade, fell by his side. End quote. Drummond only died two days after Captain Trumbull Warren, his brother-in-law. Private Christopher Pope was part of the 1st Canadian Contingent and served with the 10th Battalion when he was shot in both legs as he stormed into the wood. The wounds would prove fatal and he would die in France. He had enlisted in Calgary shortly after war was declared. Lieutenant Arthur Lodge Lindsay of London, Ontario had left with the 1st Contingent to the front and after the battle it was reported he had been killed. Back home an impressive memorial service was held for him and then a few weeks later it was stated he had only been wounded but his injuries were fatal, and he had died. For the people back home who loved him, it was a back and forth of emotions. Prior to enlisting, he had worked as a civil engineer. James Naismith, not the one who invented basketball, had enlisted with the 46th Durham Regiment in 1900 and spent time in the military as a lieutenant. He would go overseas and fight in the battle with the 10th Battalion, where he would lose his life while serving as the captain of the regiment. His wife received the news of his death the same day that her brother-in-law was reported as wounded. Private John Morris Williams of Sarnia had been employed at the Spanish River Lumberyards when he enlisted. Unmarried and 27 years old, he had been sent to the front and would lose his life at Kitchener's Wood. No details of his death were given. 
Ross Binkley was the head coach of the Toronto Argonauts in 1913 and served as the team captain from 1910 to 1913. While serving in France, he was in command of a machine gun during the attack, and the circumstances of his death are related as such, quote, They laughed and joked under a terrible storm of bullets and shells as ever soldiers faced. They never faltered or hesitated a moment. We started to move up in the trenches from four miles back, and the last half mile were under fire. It was then that Ross Binkley of the machine gun section was killed by the bursting of a big shell, end quote. Back in Canada, as can be expected, news of the battle was spoken of highly by the press. The Ottawa citizen would write, quote, Heroic Canadians save day, end quote. The war office would report, quote, The Canadians had many casualties, but their gallantry and determination undoubtedly saved the situation. Their conduct has been magnificent throughout, end quote. On April 26th, the Ottawa citizen would announce in a large headline, quote, London rings with praise for Canadian valour under murderous German attack. End quote. It would go on to state, quote, Their charge and advance did more than regain a position and recover lost guns. It enabled cohesion of the whole Allied front to be re-established. The issue of the battle is not yet complete. There are still German outposts few and weak, but the Allied counterattacks are regaining lost ground on the Canadian left. End quote. The Windsor Star would state, quote, Efficiency of Canadian gunners brings great praise from General French, still hammering away cold steel used effectively in gaining new positions in Belgium. End quote. The Duke of Connaught, the Governor General of Canada, would write to Sam Hughes, quote, Canada has every reason to be proud of the gallantry of her sons who have nobly done their part in this great struggle for the liberties and the honour of our empire against the tyranny and injustice of Germany. As an English officer, I am proud of our Canadian comrades and feel that they have brought honour to the British Empire as well as to themselves, end quote. Sam Hughes, who was the Minister of the Militia, would state, quote, They have done what was expected of them, what we all knew they could do and what was their duty. Yes, this dispatch makes us prouder than ever of them. I am sorry that the dispatch says there were so many casualties, but we must prepare for these, end quote. Sir Robert Borden, speaking for the government, would announce in a statement, quote, the magnificent pluck and gallantry of resourcefulness of the Canadian troops at the front saved a difficult situation as the highest authority is publicly declared. They have proved themselves the equal of any troops in the world, and in doing so have brought distinction and renown to the Dominion. My colleagues and I deeply lament the long list of casualties and send a profound sympathy to every home which is plunged into sadness and sorrow by the tidings that reach us from hour to hour. End quote. Both the 10th and 16th battalions would take a great deal of time to rebuild due to the devastating losses, and it was announced in several newspapers there would be an immediate effort to recruit new troops from across Canada. Newspapers also began to print the lists of the dead, which often took up an entire column depending on the newspaper and the location. Roughly 60% of the men in the 10th battalion came from Calgary, and at the old city hall a plaque was put up to honour the men who gave their lives in the battle. The Calgary Highlanders also honour the battle every year on April 22nd, including a dinner, a Freedom of the City parade, and a church service. When the war was over, Marshal Ferdinand Falk, the Allied Supreme Commander, would state that the assault on Kitchener's Wood by the Canadians was the greatest act of the war. For today's profile of a soldier from the First World War, I'm looking at Sergeant Charles Herbert Peck, 
who came from Bear River, Nova Scotia, to fight in the war. Peckett had originally served with the regiment before he joined the 17th Battalion in September of 1914. By December, he'd been promoted from corporal to sergeant and was encamped at Salisbury Plain. And at the time, there were rumors that the battalion would be heading to Egypt. He would join the 16th Battalion prior to the Battle of Kitchener's Wood, and his diary would serve as an important glimpse into that battle. He would write of his transfer, quote, I am separated from Garnet now. I am in the 16th Battalion. Well, it is too damn bad the way they used the poor 17th practically all smashed up. Sam Hughes, the old son of a bitch, swore they would never go to the front, and he kept his word, end quote. At the start of the Kitchener's Wood Battle, Peck described the fighting as, quote, The hardest thing that I have saw is a young fellow. I took a liking to him in Valcartier and keep him with me up to the last. We was attacking in a woods when the poor fellow was shot through the neck. He could not speak but put out a hand for me to shake it. Certainly did get my nerves unstrung for a bit, end quote. It is not known who the young fellow was, as Peck never states. Peck would also speak about the Germans he faced, and he would say, quote, They either run or get down on their knees and beg for mercy, and believe me, they get a lot of mercy. The first fellow I stabbed I know was in the night, and I shut my eyes, but I caught him in the neck. End quote. On May 29, 1915, it would be reported in the Vancouver province that Charles Peck had been wounded. He would write in his diary, quote, That night we got all mixed up, lost all our officers, and we was a week getting back those what came. A large piece of shrapnel struck my pack and took it right clear off my back and God knows where it went to. End quote. Peck would survive the war and return to Nova Scotia. In 1920, he would marry and on March 24, 1945, he would die at the age of 63 from a cerebral hemorrhage. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Battle of Kitchener's Wood. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randa McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Wikipedia, The Path of Duty, The History of Perth County, History of Indian Head, The Story of the Royal Regina Rifles, Legion Magazine, Military and Family History Blog, Ottawa Citizen, Vancouver Province, and the Virtual War Memorial. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.